0: The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Roanoke Park area. Now we come to our time for our message today, and I'll ask you please to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, This is our 14th week in this powerful section of God's word, and it's powerful because it tells us how we can be strengthened in our efforts to live the Christian life. Our study is Christian warfare, and the terms of this warfare and how Christians fight this war are outlined in the sixth chapter of Ephesians. Now, if you will look with me at verse number 10 after 13 weeks these are words that should ring in your ears ephesians chapter 6 beginning in verse number 10 finally my brethren be strong in the lord and in the power of his might put on the whole armor of god that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I don't mind reading this passage many times because truly we do need for these words to stick in our minds. Uh, the meaning of these verses and what you are to do should be with you continually because this warfare that we fight continues and it will until the day that the Lord takes us home. Christian warfare is the battle of perseverance in the faith. It's the battle for the sanctification of the soul. And it is strenuously resisted by our great adversary. And the wiles that are spoken of here are his tricks that he uses and the traps that he sets to destroy our faith in God. Now, while it is true that Satan could never capture your soul, it's also true that he can twist your thinking and tempt you to commit sins that deny your faith in God. Now, the Lord, our God, who is the captain of our souls, provides a way that we fight this adversary, a way to resist all his advances. Satan and his demons are too powerful for us, and they work in the spiritual realm where there is no ability for us to fight. And thus the Lord provides for us a spiritual means of protection for those that are his children. And in our passage, this passage, the apostle refers to these as the armor of God. And it is the the spiritual graces and the virtues of the Savior that are gifted to his sanctified soldiers, the armor. ...is our protection, and it is the only protection that is supplied against Satan's attacks. Now, we have discussed three parts of our armor. These are the belt of truth or truthfulness that we see in verse number 14. There is the breastplate of righteousness also in verse 14. And there is the preparation of the feet in verse 15, and that is to wear the shoes of the gospel of peace... And if I might just comment on those shoes for just a moment, the shoes, the gospel of peace, these are the means of reconciliation. Now, Satan himself could never be reconciled to God, but his human helpers can. and They are the soldiers that must be recruited into the Lord's army. They must be reconciled out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. And the way that they are reconciled is by faith in the gospel. Well, now we come to verses 16 and 17. It says, above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In verse number 16, above all, refers to the following, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Above all does not mean that these are the most important, but that the entire armor works together and none of it can be left off. Now, we see that in verse number 11, where the apostle says, we stand if we put on the whole armor of God. Now, each of these parts works for our sanctification and enables our perseverance. And then there is this special description that is attached to the shield of faith. It says that this shield will quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now, in our last message two weeks ago, uh, we began our discussion of the shield of faith. Faith is the instrument that connects us to God's power. This is the reason that it is the number one subject in the Bible. Justification is by faith. We are made right with God by faith. And then the entire complement of Christian doctrine is referred to as the faith. And we're told that, that, that we must fight for, we must defend the faith. Now that's two ways that faith are uh, faith is spoken of in the scripture. There's justifying, saving faith. And then there is Christian doctrine, which is known as the faith. But then there's also a third way that faith is used. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. And so that third usage is living faith. The justified, the redeemed, the called, the sanctified will live their daily lives by faith and they live by faith by tapping into God's power as the strength to fight spiritual enemies now this living faith is the subject of this passage we live by hiding ourselves behind the shield of faith and by hiding i don't mean cowardly hiding i mean in the sense of of securing for us a strong wall to protect us from the projectiles of the enemy we are not cowards we just know enough that our strength is not in us it's in the object of our faith now just briefly our first area of discussion from last time was the focus of faith faith by itself means nothing now there are many who think that faith is all you need but they never explain what kind of faith and what that faith is in and then what it will do for you when you have it faith is Intangible by itself. It stands for nothing. So faith must have an object. And unfortunately, most of the time the object is wrong because most people have no more than faith in themselves. Oh, we're told if we have just have faith to do it, that faith can rise above. If We have faith in our inner strength. If we'll just summon that and believe strongly enough in it, it will be enough. But that kind of faith is no good in spiritual warfare. Faith in yourself will never deflect a single fiery dart of Satan. And why is that? Well, it's because of what we've spoken of many times. We've described it numerous times in this passage that there is a warning here that we are not fighting physical enemies, that our enemies are established principalities and powers of evil and rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness in the highest levels. We can't touch those by faith in ourselves. No, your faith has to be in someone who's bigger than those enemies. And who is this one who is bigger? Well, he is the creator. He is the almighty. He is Jehovah God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the focus of our faith must be him. He is the power behind the shield of faith. And our faith in him is not a blind faith. It's a tested faith, one that's always proved reliable. Not once has it failed. There is no record of failure and never has God abandoned his people when they fully trusted in his arm to save them. And we looked at that and, and we saw how Elijah believed God and how he defeated the prophets of Baal. Why did Elijah trust God? Well, it's because Israel had a long track record with God's faithfulness to them. I mean, no other gods have that record because they aren't gods. They all failed on Mount Carmel, and it didn't matter how much his prophets believed in him, how much faith they had in him. It was no good because their God had no power. And, you know, there are billions of people across the world that trust gods that have no power. Now, the 19th chapter of Acts records Paul's visit to Ephesus. Ephesus. We don't have time to rehearse that whole story, and I will talk a little bit more about it next week. But there is one part of it that I want to focus on in relation uh, to faith as we're speaking of it today. In Ephesus, and of course, the Ephesian letter is the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And there in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was the magnificent temple of Diana. The silversmiths in Ephesus had a lucrative business selling idols of Diana and of the temple that when Paul preached the gospel, uh, there were many people that turned away from the worship of Diana and these idols. And so the silversmiths in, in Ephesus realized that this preaching of the gospel and, and people turning to Jesus Christ, that was seriously harmful to their business. Now, let me read just a few verses. This is Acts 19, beginning in verse 23. And the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. A lot of commotion over this issue for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain under the craftsmen. Whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, sirs, ye know that by this craft that is making these idols, we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. Well, this is the condition of much of the world today. They believe in gods they have made with their hands. Or we might say gods they have invented in their minds. Now, let me read from the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 16, verse 19, O Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, Well, surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things wherein there is no profit. Shall a man make gods unto himself and they are no gods? Therefore, Behold, I will this once cause them to know I will cause them to know mine hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. And this is precisely what God did through the gospel to these Gentile people by his power and his might. The Gentiles turned from their idols to serve the one true living God. They learned that their gods were no gods. Well, this is what Paul said to the Thessalonian church. First Thessalonians chapter one for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living And true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And so this was going on all across uh, Asia there that Paul was preaching the gospel. People were turning from their idols to the one true living God. And do you know the major proof that is put forward to demonstrate the power of God? Now, there are many things that could be used. We could go back and we could look at all those miracles of the Old Testament. But the one thing that's always set forward as the greatest power of God is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's always the defining point, believing in the resurrection of the dead. And that resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, is not a fable. That was an historical fact that was witnessed by hundreds now, the focus of our faith then is genuine and it's in his resurrection power that we trust. Paul said that in Philippians three in the uh, uh, call to worship that we read earlier, he said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. That is the power that we trust. And that is the same power that is is promised to defeat Satan forever. Going all the way back to the book of Genesis, at the very beginning, it said that he would bruise, Satan would bruise Christ's heel, but then he would crush. Christ would crush Satan's head. And so when Paul said that the shield of faith quenches all the fiery darts of the wicked, here is the source of his confidence. And hadn't he seen, hadn't Paul himself seen the resurrected Christ? Yes, he did. And so he had no doubt who would win the spiritual war. Well, now that we understand the focus of faith and the reason that it's critical that our faith be in the proper object, now I want to move on to show you what faith does. Number two is the force of faith. The force of faith. William Carey, the great Baptist missionary of the 18th century, also known as the father of modern missions, famously said, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Now, William Carey was an extraordinary man of faith. How much faith does it take to see great things from God? Well, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 17. I know that you are familiar with this chapter. It begins with the spectacular transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus took Peter, James and John up on a mountain where they saw him transition into a marvelous display of his glory and they saw Christ's face as it it, it would shine as the sun. His clothes became white as light and appearing with Jesus were Moses and Elijah and also, they heard the voice of God, the father from heaven that spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am pleased. Hear ye him. And that was tremendous evidence of the power of Christ. And we would expect that it would bring with it an exorbitant infusion of faith. Well, immediately following this, Jesus and the disciples went down from the mountain and there they were met by a man whose son was possessed with the devil. Now, his father said that he's a lunatic. He said sometimes he falls into the fire, sometimes he falls into the water, and he asked Jesus to heal his son. Now, we look at this in Matthew 17 and verse 14. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed, oftentimes he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could we not cast him out? Now, we notice Jesus answer in verse 20 says something about faith, the amount of faith that is needed to do such miracles. Now, the disciples descended from the mount after seeing the transfiguration. Their eyes are wide open with all that they had seen. And we would think here they are with now with copious amounts of faith. And the disciples ask, well, then why couldn't we cast out the devil? This is what Jesus says in verse 20. Because of your unbelief. For verily, I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed... You shall say to this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Now here's what I, what I want you to see from this. First, that a little faith is a powerful force. Now most are just totally confused about the meaning of Jesus' answer. They want to quantify faith by interpreting this well, you really don't need to believe much. You just need to have a little bit of faith, but that is not what he meant. Now here he's talking about a living faith. In a mustard seed, there is life. Now, a mustard seed may indeed be the smallest of seeds, or comparatively speaking, and yet packed within that little mustard seed. Mustard seed is the force of life that grows into a large, vibrant plant. And it's the life that's within the seed that causes that mustard seed to grow into a tree that the birds come and lodge in the branches, roost in the branches of that tree. Well, the issue with the disciples was a mixture of faith. Now, at times they, they did cast out devils and they healed diseases, but this time they couldn't. And I think the problem was That they were mechanically going about their business and they forgot the true power source. And so sometimes they trusted in their own power. Now, the faith of the mustard seed is not about quantity. It's about quality. That is a little faith that is plugged into the right power source accomplishes great things. Now, perhaps the. Disciples thought that just the fact that they kept company with Jesus, that that was enough to ensure that they could do whatever he did. But what they really needed was for faith to be such a part of them that they didn't really need to think very hard about it, that they lived their faith so they could just speak the word and then the power of God would be behind it. And as we look at that, we think about how do we approach Faith. Do we live by a faith that is such a part of us that we don't really need to concentrate and with very much difficulty to muster up faith whenever it's needed? That is, do you walk closely enough to the Lord that when a trial comes, you don't hesitate about what to do? You don't wonder if this trial can be conquered. Are you living in faith so that you know that God can handle it? And that is what prevents panic. In days like these, at the first sign of trouble, at the first report from the doctor that there is a problem, Christians without their shield wring their hands. They frantically wonder, what will we do next? What will happen next? Will we lose our jobs? Will we shrivel up and die? Well, they don't really need more faith. They need to exercise the faith that's already a part of them. They need to rely on the faith that is within them because Jesus Christ is in them. Now, the point of the, of the little mustard seed, that it's, that it's greater than the mountain, what's that all about? Well, a mountain has no life. There's no power in it. It's just a massive rock of dirt that, that, and dirt that looks big. But when you have the life of Jesus in you, just the grain of the mustard seed, that is more powerful than any force that is against you. Now, the point is that there's not an amount of faith that if you store it up, you could move Mount St. Helena over into Bodega Bay. Now, this is hyperbole that's used to make the point that God's power is enough and there is no force that overcomes it. So what is faith compared to such a huge obstacle? What is faith compared to our sicknesses? What is faith compared to a virus? What is faith compared to financial difficulties? Well, if that faith is in Christ, all problems fall at his feet. Now, notice in Matthew 17, 18, the cause of this young man falling into the fire. What is the cause? Well, the cause is a demon. There was a demon in him. Now, in our text, spiritual forces that we wrestle against and for which we need the armor of protection is these same demons. Now, perhaps we don't see and we don't understand and we don't identify demon activity as they did in the New Testament times. We are sure of this, that a Christian could never be possessed with a demon, and even though New Testament types of displays of demonic activity. Maybe that's not as common in our day, but that doesn't mean that Satan has slowed down his attacks and that Satan is reluctant to use his demons. No, scripture is very clear about this, that they are around us everywhere and they are constantly throwing darts at our shield. So even a little faith is a powerful force if that faith is in the right object. Well, you take that, then you talk about little faith as Jesus does here. The faith of mustard seed. What's going to happen if you have great faith? Well, that brings me to a second observation about the force of faith. Secondly, increase the size by exercise. You increase the size of your faith by exercising it. Now, because you are a believer, uh, we just said faith is in you because Christ is in you. Then how can you increase that faith? You use it more. Faith is like the muscles in your body. Faith is not something that you gather to yourself from the outside. You don't go to the store to buy more faith. You don't go to school to get more faith. You don't go to seminary to get more faith. No, faith is already inside and it just needs to be used. And I don't know if you need to under uh, if you understand that. But maybe I should say it this way, that the source of faith that was outside of you is now inside of you because you have believed in Jesus Christ. The scripture says that Christ dwells in you by faith. Now, when you want to get stronger, you don't go to the hospital and say, well, here I am. I'm ready to receive my muscle transplant. I need more muscles because I'm not strong enough. Well, the doctor is not going to give you a muscle transplant. You have all the muscles you need. Now, what he will tell you to do is to exercise. He may tell you how to tone your muscles, because if you don't use them, they will atrophy. So he may send you to a physical therapist where they will exercise. You He may send you even to a gym. Not to get more muscles, no, but to train the muscles that you have. Many years ago, I had a knee operation and and when they cut my knee open and they they fixed it and then they sewed it back up, it was sore. The temptation was to lay in bed and let it alone because it was too sore to move. And the doctor said, no, don't do it. Get up and exercise, because if you don't, you'll lose the range of motion. It'll get stiff and you can't move it any longer. And faith is like that. You need to exercise it to make it stronger. And when you trust God implicitly to take care of the problem you have today, then you have no problem trusting him to take care of a bigger problem that comes tomorrow. That's how faith works. You trust God and when he comes through. You have confidence he'll be there again and again and again. The Bible has plenty of examples of those who live by faith. Two weeks ago, we read Hebrews chapter 11. There are multiple examples in that chapter. But the one that stands out the most is is Abraham. Abraham is called the father of the faithful and for good reason. When he was 99 years old, God told him that... He would have a son. His wife, Sarah, was 90 years old. Well, there's a reason that a 90-year-old woman doesn't have children. The womb is dried up. The muscles that are used for delivery delivery are atrophied. They don't function any longer. The hormones that are needed to stimulate the, the parts uh, of the body that are necessary for childbearing, that, that's not there any longer. So Sarah, knowing this, she knew she had no hope for a child. And so she laughed at the suggestion when it was told her. So what is the miracle in the birth of Isaac? Well, before Sarah could have a child, God had to completely remake her womb. He had to fix all of those parts. And, you know, sometimes I refer to that to the plumbing and all the plumbing was worn out. So it was a miracle Then after God did that, after God did that, how much trouble do you think that Abraham had trusting God? Abraham saw what God could do. And so when he was told to do a greater thing, I think, at least in his own mind, probably to sacrifice his son, the son of promise to take Isaac and kill him on an altar. Well, he went up Mount Moriah with full confidence that God would raise him from the dead. Abraham didn't know that God was going to stop him from slitting Isaac's throat. Neither did he expect that God would do it. But he did fully expect that he would light that fire and there would be a fire on that altar and he would burn a dead body. That's the reason they took wood with them. It was to burn a body for sacrifice. So he expected Isaac would die. But then what? Be brought back to life. Now, Abraham was fully prepared to make that sacrifice and yet before he went up that mountain, he told his servants to stay behind. And he said, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and we will come to you again. See, Abraham had had confidence, full confidence in, in God's promise. Why? He knew what God could do. Now, William Carey was a man of great faith. But I think that Abraham was surpassing. He attempted a great thing for God, the sacrifice of Of a promised son and he expected even greater things. God gave life from an impossible womb. And he believed that God could give life again by raising Isaac from the dead. You see what happens when you apply this kind of faith to your problems? You increase the size of it by exercising it. Nothing is too hard for God. And you know that. You know it because you trusted him in the past. And you know he'll always be there in the future. That's the force of faith. And this is the reason that Paul says, take the shield of faith and it will quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Nothing penetrates when you have full confidence in God. Well, thus far... This is wonderful news. Oh, it's tremendous news for the people of God. We have the focus of our faith Focus is that unfailing object. Our faith must be in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's the force of faith that faith does great things. Faith does the impossible because our God is the God of the impossible. But that's not all that we need to focus on because there is a warning that goes along with faith. When faith is improper, there is the failure of faith. Now, that may seem impossible that I would make this assertion after all that I've said. How does faith fail? Well, we know that none of us has a perfect faith. And we know that salvation comes to us with an imperfect faith. Now, I certainly would never mean that faith that is properly exercised could fail. It can't fail because faith is not the thing that does anything. It's object. the object of faith that's always good, that, that does what we expect. And this is the reason that we can be saved with an imperfect faith. None of us get saved because we have we have perfect knowledge of God's word. No, we're saved because the object of our faith is perfect. And that's just the basics of what it means to be justified by faith in faith alone, in Christ alone. If the object is Christ, it never fails. Faith only fails when that focus is off. So let me give you some two observations about failing faith. The first is that we fail when we justify sin. In the last part of verse 16, Paul says, speaks of the fiery darts of the wicked now that those fiery darts that's an allusion to flaming arrows that were used in warfare in paul's day the tip of an arrow would be wrapped in cloth dipped in pitch and then set on fire and then when that arrow landed the impact would cause that pitch to spray and the fire would burn for several feet around the arrow and paul likened that to the temptations that that satan hurls at us and he said This shield of faith deflects all of those flaming arrows. Well, when does an arrow get through? An arrow gets through when the shield of faith is not in place. A shield out of place is Satan's attempt to get you to distrust God. Uh, We've discussed this, this point several times before in our study, that the root of all sin is our propensity not to trust God. When we accept temptation and we act on it, it becomes sin. And then we find ourselves defending ourselves, not against Satan, but against God. How do we do that? Well, we offer excuses. We try to justify our sin. Adam did this in the Garden of Eden. When he failed, he put up a shield of defense against God. And he said, it was the woman that you gave me. God, God, it's your fault. It's your fault for giving her to me. And when Adam said that, he, he impugned God's character. And what he was doing was trying to justify his sin. It's God's fault, not mine. All justification of sin exalts Satan above God. It says Satan is right and God is wrong. It implies that it's not right for God to demand high standards And so when we fall into sin, it's because we don't act in faith. I mean, the scripture says whatever is not of faith is sin. Sin is when we trust Satan, not God. Now, do you think that there are many Christians who don't know that the Bible says, God says, you shall not commit adultery? Do you think there are many Christians that don't know that they should marry someone who is an unbeliever? Now, I think Christians who haven't studied the Bible very much know this because the Holy Spirit lives in them and the Holy Spirit pricks his people when they do the wrong thing. So they know this. They, they know that God says, don't do it, but they want to do it. Their heart is bursting for that love affair at work. And still, God says, don't do it. Well, if God says, don't do it. Then who is it that speaks to him and says them and says, It's okay. Go ahead. You deserve happiness. You deserve a little bit of this forbidden fruit. Reach out and touch it. Take it, and it'll make you feel so good. Who says that? I think we all know. Satan says it. And when you do it, what have you done? Well, you have believed Satan, not God. Rarely do I talk to a Christian who. Has had an affair, been, is involved in an affair that they don't fall all over themselves trying to justify their sin. And you think, well, what justification is there in this? Well, my husband doesn't pay attention to me. Uh, we're incompatible. I, I, I don't love him anymore or the husband. I don't love her anymore, whichever. So they just fall over, all over themselves trying to find that excuse, the thing that they think makes it Okay, And they're just gushing in self-justification. Do you understand how bad this is? To sin is to believe Satan. Isn't that where all sin started? Isn't that what this is about? You believe Satan that you will be better off and you will be happier if you pluck that fruit. And that's all that it is. And perhaps some of you don't get it that to believe Satan... Is to call God a liar. And who is the Christian. The true Christian. That can go day after day. Calling God a liar. And I don't mean just in in in, 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 a, in affairs. And all those kinds of things. I mean the person who goes day after day. Just day after day. Sinning and defying God. And calling him a liar. How is that person born of God? God's people won't do it. Oh but. Then they try to justify self again and they say, no, no, I would never call God a liar. I would never do that. But God said, if you sin and you obey Satan, you call him a liar. But then you said you're not calling God a liar, which is to call God a liar because he just said it. Now, be aware of this. There is no excuse for any sin. God's standards are high. And the fact that we are fallen creatures Does not negate our responsibility to act righteously and not to sin. God demands that. He demands it. Even though in ourselves we can't fulfill it. So how can we fulfill it? Only by acting in faith. Faith is the only thing that bridges our failures. And so we must continually act in faith and exercise faith or The fiery darts will always get through. And then finally, we fail when we deify self. When you're self-sufficient, you're saying, I don't need you, God. I can do this on my own. My abilities are enough. And this is the same as saying, I trust myself to do what only God can do. That's the definition of deifying self. It's a contradictory faith to say, well, I trust God for my salvation, but I trust me to live it. The just shall live by faith. Well, what is that faith? Again, it's in the object of faith. We don't trust ourselves for this; we trust Him. But unfortunately, this is where most Christians and most churches live. They live by deifying themselves and their themselves and their ability. Now, I've just described that in individuals, but churches. Can be guilty of this too. And this is when the church leans on programs and gimmicks to do God's work. This is when the church says, you know, the preaching of the gospel, that doesn't work anymore. The gospel by itself, that's no longer enough to reach today's world. And they say, we have a better plan than God's. And we must do what God's word fails to do. This was a problem a long time ago. It was a problem in the Corinthian church. They were dependent on their worldly wisdom. Read 1 Corinthians, the first part of that. They thought they were smarter than Paul, smarter than God's apostle, smarter than God's preacher, smarter than the one that God sent to them. They had a better idea. And the result, if you go on reading 1 Corinthians, is nothing but confusion and chaos. And the truth is that the greatest philosophers of the time... They had never led anyone to the true God. Greece and Rome had the the greatest orators. They had the best thinkers. They had the best philosophers. But they were awash in a sea of immorality and polytheism. Acts 17, that's enough to summarize the, the lack of satisfaction in Greek and Roman philosophy. On Mars Hill, you can read this. They were constantly listening to the next greatest thing. They were always listening to someone tell some new thing. Why did they do it? Because they weren't satisfied. They weren't satisfied in what they had. They were restless. Because there is no peace in vain philosophy. That never works. And yet there are churches that do the same. They abandon God's method for new ideas. Oh, you just think back on some of the things you can remember. Think about how much, how much the, how much did the purpose-driven church and the purpose-driven life do for Christ? Where's, where's the great movement today? How much did that movie, The Passion of the Christ, do for Christianity? When they said that's the greatest tool of evangelism the world has ever seen. How much did that old promise keepers movement accomplish? That's now dead and gone. Where's the emergent church today? They said, this is the answer to bring people to God. But all those methods are gone and they left leaving no lasting impact. Those methods are failure to trust God. And the more churches do it, the further they get away from God. And so the result of these man-made idols is the practically impossible quest to find a church that focuses on preaching the word and building the church through the word. It's a failure of faith. So what then must we do? Well, we must continue to fight against the one who's behind every attack. We don't take sides with him. We don't join him. We don't believe him. And we must never forget that we're powerless against him without every piece of this armor in place. And we must do what Spurgeon said. Put up this shield of faith as a defense for our defense. Why? Because the Bible simply says. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith. Is full dependence and confidence in God. There is no other faith that is Christian than this. There is no living faith that is Christian but this. Full confidence. Full dependence on God. W.A. Criswell outlined Hebrews 11 this way. Faith is certain of God's promises. Faith is confident of God's power. Faith perceives the divine design Faith acts on God's promises. Faith esteems Christ above all. Faith overcomes tremendous odds. If you understand faith this way, then you have the shield of faith in place. And when you have that in place, all the fiery darts of the wicked are stopped. May God help us to live always by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you asking you, Lord, to help us to be people of faith. Help us to live by faith. We have the understanding of justifying faith. We have put our trust in you and you alone to save us from our sins. We understand the concept of the faith. That is the all the doctrines of God's word that we're to study and learn and we are to defend. We have so much trouble, though, with the third kind, the living faith. And we really shouldn't have any trouble at all because you have demonstrated the power, the power in faith. So many times the power, the object of our faith, just as we as we read from Matthew eight a little while ago. And that's just a very, very small part of what's recorded in scripture about what Jesus could do. And Jesus is that that God of the Old Testament that performed all those miracles that gave that track record for Elijah to go up on Mount Carmel with full confidence that God would honor his sacrifice and send fire down from heaven to consume it. We need that kind of faith. We, we need implicit faith in you so that none of the things that come upon us in this life, all the troubles that we have, they don't stop us. They don't get us down. They don't keep us from progressing and being sanctified in our faith and living close to you. Lord, help us to have that faith, to exercise the faith that we need. We thank you for our church and for those who are enduring. Lord, that's the persevering faith that that this church needs in this, this tough time when people are so tempted to fall by the wayside, and, and some do. And we know that happens, and it has happened. Lord, we pray for those Those members of our church that are standing strong, that all the uh, forces of evil that have been hurled at them when they haven't had all the resources that we normally have of having fellowship with people in church and being around God's people constantly, we don't have that. So, Lord, we pray, keep us strong, keep us together, and we expect that you will do great things. You will bring your church back together. And, Lord, may we be prepared to go forward with the gospel of Christ. Bless us now. Help us through this week. Take this message to to live this faith, to use this faith and expect great things from you. Thank you, Lord, for all of this. We praise your name. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. And now I want to give you a final benediction. And we talk about our faith and the scripture says, well, this faith is the What overcomes the world? This does overcome Satan, all his powers of evil, all of your problems, everything that you're dealing with. Faith handles all of that. And here in 1 John chapter 5 and in verse number 1, verses 1 through 4, and the entire chapter is great. Read it later when you have time. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ Is born of God. That's our justifying faith. And every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Now that's living faith, isn't it? For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. And now verse 4 For whatsoever Is born of God. That is every person who has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. What happens to them? They overcome the world. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world. Even our faith. Go with God this week. Go with God. Live by faith. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bbaptist.org.